You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business unusual. Hey guys, um, thanks for joining us today on this podcast. I just wanted to go through and just explain our goal of the Business Unusual podcast and, and really what we're trying to achieve at Topco. We're looking at helping organizations within South Africa and, and seeing how we can grow and do more business. And the way that we see that we can do that is by putting you in touch with those organizations that are shooting the lights out, those organizations that are blowing up their sales through their customer service, through innovation. What we've decided to do is to obviously you know, share these insights, these, these critical interviews of these business leaders from Africa and around the world. And, and we do that through these podcasts, through our newsletter, and through our summits and awards. You know, for us, we're about introducing you to a trusted network of great companies in Africa. So guys, go to the platform, look it up. There's some great podcasts, there's some newsletters that you should be part of, but there's also some great events that you should either be looking to get involved in. And, and uh, if you're needing help being introduced to someone, hit me up. Thanks, guys. Good day, everybody, and welcome to uh, Business Unusual podcast. Today, I'm joined by the CEO of EOH, Stephen Van Koller. So, joining me today, Stephen, how are you? I'm doing good, actually. Um, as I say to people, um, this lockdown's been quite good after, you know, I, my last 18 months, I've managed to reacquaint myself with my wife and my kids. So uh, there's been some. They remember your name now. Yeah, they remember who I am. <laughs> I, I had the same thing. I, I had to. Um, it, it, there was a little bit of a, a fight of dominance of who was in control of the house again. I thought <laughs> I was the visitor. <laughs> but it, but it was great. So I mean, how have you found it? Are you are you able to to bring some sort of normality back to life and work, or are you working completely remotely? Yeah, we're working 99% remotely. I've, I think I've been for five meetings in the last 120 days where I've had to like for auditors or things like that. But um, the biggest issue is really making sure that you split your home life with from your work life because otherwise there's no split and you can just carry on. Yeah. So I've made some real attempts at things like... Um, in the mornings, making sure that, you know, I either go for a run or I go for a walk or something with my wife and that I don't start work until I've done that. Always try and take a half hour for lunch and, all, you know, and go and sit outside and smell the roses and then um, try and knock off, you know, every day at the same time because otherwise it just flows in and you never stop. And yeah. uh, that can be quite stressful. You know, if you think about it, you actually used to spend quite a bit of time in your car. And that used to be your downtime, listening to the radio or making a phone call home or doing, yeah, you've just got, you know, a zoom off to zoom off to zoom off to zoom. Mm. And you can end up, you know, not actually having any, any downtime at all. 
to sure. I found the same thing. I think I got expelled from the house actually. So that's why I've come to the office. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We were fighting over bandwidth. It was, it it was the funniest thing. I'd have a podcast and, uh, and I told everybody, be quiet. We've got a podcast. You can't go stream. And I've got three young boys and it it didn't go down too well. Yeah. Or playing Fortnite or something like that. Yeah, the, the, my youngest tells me he wants to be a gamer. His career choice is now he wants to be a gamer, and I must. He, he shows me videos of kids who have made it in gaming, and I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> Every kid's dream, for sure. I, I say, go read a book. Go read a book. They don't want to read books, so um, things have changed. And 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 in terms of the business, how have you? How because obviously you've brought a little bit more discipline to your personal life, recognizing that. What, what have you seen some of the, the challenges with, with the business side of things through COVID? It's been very interesting. Um, two, there's, there's been a few things. Obviously, one, when you don't have human contact, you've got to make it. You know, so the communication thing has been absolutely critical. I mean, we used to have a once a month sort of uh, team, you know, broader team call. I started doing once a week with the whole team. Um, and, um, and interestingly, when we did a survey, we're now three months in and, um, nearly two thirds of the people want to keep it at once a week. And it's just about a little bit of, you know, certainty and giving feedback and them getting an understanding of what you're thinking about and that you're on top of it and, um, you're making decisions with, with real info and just getting, even if it's not face to face, that two way communication and it's amazing uh, how innovative people can be if you um, involve them and so that's been a really really interesting change and I almost feel like uh, if I don't have my weekly Friday morning call with all the staff I feel like I've missed out on something and uh, even this morning I mean we've we've done the first bottom-up strategy process in this business in 22 years and the idea there was to get people to own the strategy. You know, it's their business. They come in every day. It's not about me. Uh, it's about what they want to do. That's why they joined EOH. And so we did a bottom-up strategy. And uh, for the first time in, in 22 years, we then had consolidated, got it approved by the board, and we then presented it back to the whole staff on this is what it looks like. This is where you fit in. And uh, we had the big piece of, of, of everything, and then they went away into their, their um, business units and had the, the next level this afternoon, which I think has just finished at 2 o'clock. So uh, it's been interesting, and you see how many people dial in for that, that actually want to be part of it as opposed to not be part of it. And I think that's been the biggest change, is being able to use this time to create a focus, uh, create a clear vision, create the, the communication and feedback, um, you know, channels. And that's helped us an enormous amount. I think it's, it's weird because I think there's a lot of uncertainty and you mentioned that already. And so some people are like, are we waiting till there's more certainty? Do we start making decisions around our business? But some of the more progressive businesses are seeming to take things in their own hands and sort of saying, no, we need to drive a plan now, even with this uncertainty. No, that's right. I mean, I think being proactive in these crisis situations is the most important thing. You know, it's like um, if, if you know the enemy is coming, 
Yeah. You don't wait until they come around the corner to see how big their guns are. <laughs> you put your biggest guns out and wait. And if they happen to be too big for them, well, great, then you win the war. But uh, if they come around the corner and you haven't set up your, your defenses, it's too late. And I think, yeah. you know, this is where a lot of people get it wrong. You, it's no good being reactive because then it's too late. You have to be proactive. You've got to create a vision. And it doesn't matter if you if you change it when you get new information. In fact, that's quite important. You know, being nimble and making your company nimble uh, is very important. And you need those feedback loops. You need the data. You need the information. You know, we were doing daily cash flow, daily debtors, daily creditors, right through March and April, just to make sure we knew exactly what was going on in the business immediately, and so that we could actually weave through anything, deal with any of our customers who wanted to change things uh, and uh, make sure that we were efficient, not wasting money. Um, so uh, it's been a very, very interesting process. And sort of what's, I mean, for me, I look at what you've achieved and what you're doing. And since COVID, your share price has been going up nicely. And, and, and I know that sustainability is a big push for you. Um, but I mean, where are you leaning into for your inspiration and your insight? Is it your experience and the challenging world of business you've had before? Or is it, is it people or examples that you look to? Yeah, it's a few things. You know, one thing I've learned over time, and I do think this is the 10,000 hours that, um, you know, anyone in my position needs to have. Uh, because um, when you get into these situations and or even, even into our situation we found ourselves last February, you need to fall back on, let's call it for want of a better word, process, and you have to trust the process. You can only trust the process if you've been through it before. And I've yeah. spent my life either building or fixing. And um, one thing I've learned is that in times of difficulty, don't think you can do it yourself. The best thing you can do is go and speak to as many people listen to as many people and then take the bits and then, you know, execute on it. So we were a little bit lucky in a way that, uh, you know, we had a year to practice, you know, we were thrown into crisis last year around 10th of February. And uh, it was quite frightening because uh, if you didn't move fast and you didn't get things wrong, the whole thing could, you know, collapse in a heap. And uh, when you've got, you know, eight and a half thousand employees and really good businesses, that would be pretty tragic. Um, so, you know, we went to, around sorting things out. And in all those, those cases, you go and make sure you've got good people around you and you speak to them and you listen to them. Secondly, always get bottom-up feedback. The people at the coalface know a lot more than you do and uh, work through that and share the problems. And then um, you always have to have one or two mentors that you can go and put the situation to and see how, how they react to it. So the best way is to go and ask rather than tell, you know, and uh, get as many people involved in shouldering the burden. Otherwise, it does get very stressful. And do you see, like, leadership has changed in the last six months or the last couple of years? Are you seeing a shift for from sort of how you led before to now? Is, is there a difference or what you yeah, expect? Um, um, I don't think I've changed my leadership style. I've just got more comfortable with it, if I can put it that way. I trust it more because I've, I've used it, this uh, almost decentralized 
uh, information approach before. I see, I see leadership having changed largely because of the digital world and not everything's face-to-face anymore. There's a lot of social media. People that have a lot more information before, whereas before you sort of built it up as you grew and you got older, but now everyone's got information. It's the wisdom, but that's not uh, ubiquitous. And so um, I really see leaders today are more mentors and um, um, helpers. And my job is more about opening doors, paving the way, uh, taking out obstacles so that everyone else can actually um, do their best. Um, In today's world, you can't afford to have any employee that's not giving you 100%. Yeah. Because then there's another business where they are, and then your your cost point is just uh, you know too high. So motivating and getting the best out of all your employees is basically my sole job. Uh, and so uh, I, I try to uh, lead from the centre, not from the top. Yeah, I, I think the way I sort of framed it, or what what I saw a shift was, was was coaching. Actually, I did some coaching myself and read some coaching books. And I actually found it really alien at first. Like I've really struggled because before I was so clear in what I thought needed to be done. And so for me, it was really a difficult adjustment, but something I've been working on for probably five years now, maybe a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, I see that as almost like that mentoring, coaching, trying to... It's exactly right. It's the whole comms, but trying to work through problems with people uh, helping them, you know, helping them do it rather than just doing it yourself. The mm-hmm. whole command and control or the hierarchy is mm-hmm. dead. It's gone. You know, if you try and manage like that, you, you're you just not going to win in this world. I think, I think having young children early and having teenagers now also helped me because I realized what I thought was best for them as well. And I loved them dearly. And I realized yeah. some of the things that I was trying to do, like go study or do this, it's in your best interests. And, and, the, and the behavior was the opposite of what was. So I realized that and that human behavior of, of people only change if they want to. And so it's about tapping into their purpose. And, and are you finding that that common purpose is a big part of the plan, sustainable plan? Yeah, I think it's, it's really important to give people a vision. And, you know, once again, we were lucky in that we started last August, you know, after that really gut-wrenching, embarrassing situation where they all had to, you know, go home and say to people, you know, I work at EOH. I remember being in the ENS offices and I bumped into uh, a lady who used to work with me at ABSA and she came up, hello, Stephen, haven't seen you for ages, gave me a big hug, how are you doing? and uh, everything, and I said, uh, yeah, no, I'm doing fine. She says, where are you working? So I said, no, I'm at EOH. And there was literally a 20-second silence because she didn't know what to say. And then she said, oh, Dory, you'll do a good job, and she ran off, you know. And, and I just imagine, imagine the people that had been working there for 10 years. This was their pride and joy. It was once the darling of everything, and all of a sudden we were, you know, the worst of the news. And so the most important thing was to get some of that excitement back. So we did a exponential organization session in August last year, and we got uh, the top 300 people and some of the youngsters, and we put them in a room and we went through the, the process. It's a very interesting process. It's a really different way of thinking. And we, um, we put all our 
bits and pieces together. And what was interesting is I've done it three times before with different businesses. The difference here was not the ideas. The ideas were very similar that came out. The difference was I had a group of people who knew exactly how to execute it because that's what they are. They IT specialists. And that for me was fascinating. And that gave me a real big excitement that actually we can do something great here. And then we worked with the sort of top 60 and we came up with what we felt was a structure that would work and would um, enable the business uh, to, to bring it all together. And then in the end of uh, Jan, we brought the top sort of 400 together again, uh, you know, workshop through it, came up with the, the final idea, and then we ran a whole series of workshops that we nearly didn't do because of COVID. And we decided actually, we're gonna try this process on Zoom or on Teams or whatever, and um, it'll give people something to focus on and do. And it was the most amazing process. And so yeah. we now sit having done a bottom-up strategy for the first time in 22 years. People feel they own it. And um, it's quite exciting. I use the Lego blocks and, uh, analogy. We, we probably the broadest R uh, RCT business, end-to-end -end business in this time zone. But our problem is, is that we had the, these boxes of Lego blocks or RP, but they were in different rooms and you, no one could go into a different room. So if you had the, the car, you could only build the car. If you had the boat, you could only build the boat. And actually what you needed to do was put them all together and build the amphibious car that could go on land and on sea. And uh, this is what the process has done. And it's really opened people's eyes up to what the cross-functional BU solutioning for customers can be. And it's also allowed us to share customers across these BUs. So all of a sudden, you've now got uh, the ability to sort of build anything. So we were 272 speedboats with no two-way communication. We're now going to be sort of 30 frigates that can go at their own speed, but are working together on a pattern and absolutely are communicating. And this is, this is the beauty of where we're going now. So it's quite exciting. We, we had actually, we brought Salim over, the, the author of Exponential Organizations, to Africa Tech Week about a year oh. ago. So I did a podcast with him at the beginning of uh, lockdown as well. But we brought him and his whole team to South Africa for, for that. So I studied it greatly. I, I'm a big believer in Exponential and, and I'm probably the same as you. There's, there, there is always a way. It's just finding that way. There's always someone who's making things work. It's, it's always understanding so we also, we had Tony Saldana, I don't know if you know Tony, but he worked yeah, with Salim at Procter & Gamble. Yeah. So that was, I got him on the podcast with Salim to talk around what they did as well. But it, I think it's, when I read the book, Exponential Organizations, I remember reading it because I actually went to a summit about five years ago for all the top um, media organizations in the world in, in Toronto. And there was a CEO of CNN and all these organizations. And they're basically saying, the media industry is being disrupted by technology. There's, there's no silver bullet anymore. There's, there's no way. It's just test and measure. And so I left there sort of, I don't know, almost like, oh, dear, we've <laughs> got some challenges. But then I read Salim's book, and it was actually, no, there is a way, and there's a very clear process to how do you develop these exponential organizations. So you know, I tell people, you know, um, they all go exponential, exponential, you know, whatever 
load of nonsense, but actually I, I just say to him, don't think about exponential. Think about uh, it as a different way of thinking. Yeah. And the reason why they talk about the 10x is because if I say to you in the next three years, I want your business to be 10 times bigger, you can't go back to what you used to do and just make it a little bit better. You've got to start from scratch and rethink everything you're doing and find different ways. And when you learn how to think differently, suddenly you see lots of possibilities, not lots of problems. And that's the beauty of this process of exponential uh, organization or exponential thinking or design thinking is you start um, understanding what you want to get and then you find a way to get there. And uh, I always say to them, you know, even if you don't get 10x, if you're trying for 10x and you get 2x, that's much better than 10%. Well, they so, say that if you try for 10, you'll either get 8 or 12. So it's always, it's always that. And so it's funny because we did an event, as I was saying to you, the, um, the top empowerment. And typically we, we get 80 to 100 people there. We had 850 people participate in our first wow. virtual event yesterday. That's amazing. <laughs> that was 10x. So, but I can tell you, it wasn't easy. I think I had five heart attacks. And... <laughs> um, and it wasn't easy for the team because it's a whole new learning and you couldn't apply what you knew before. I mean, we've been doing events for 20 years, but to apply what you know about events for 20 years, actually it was the people that weren't used to doing what we do that were actually adding a lot of value to the process. Yeah. So have you got examples like that, that you've seen improvements within the organization from, from no. this new way of doing things? No, we have. I mean, it, it, we, um, when I arrived, one, you know, one thing was I uh, found out that we had about 110,000 square meters of empty property. And it was because we bought a lot of businesses and you know, often they have extra space and everything. I mean, 110,000 square meters is like uh, half of Sandton City that you're paying for, the rates, taxes, connectivity. 110,000. Yeah. That's astonishing, huh? It's really so I challenged the team to just rethink the way, we, the way we work. And basically what I wanted them to um, set up was um, like WeWork space, but our own WeWork space. So that uh, you didn't, you know, if your office was in four ways and you lived in Pretoria, well, you didn't have to come into four ways every day. You could go into one of the other 40 EOH offices use the printer, use the Wi-Fi, you know, whatever you had to do. So you just saved more time. Uh, and it was, it was quite interesting. The team went off and we did a few tests uh, with new sites and we totally underestimated the volume of people who would want to use the new places, firstly. And then, you know, secondly, the, the team's come back. I mean, we've closed over 40 buildings uh, and um, we've saved uh, about 90 million rand annually on an annual basis. I mean, that's just like astonishing money for a company that runs on a 10% EBITDA margin. I mean, that's like a billion rands worth of revenue I have to make to cover that cost. And you speak to any salesman, getting a billion rands worth of revenue uh, is like a huge task. And so... It's, it's, it's quite interesting when you, when you give people a vision and let yeah. them go and solve, they yeah. often, as you said, they do more than, than the 10x, they end up with 12x. 
Yeah. And uh, this is what's happened. And through COVID, we're even getting better at it now because we've realized how much people can actually work remotely. And therefore, uh, we can go even a step further than we had originally. We were sort of going for this hybrid work, work situation to give people flexibility. You know, my big thing as a parent with lots of kids is that you know, I, I, I want the norm to be that, uh, that people work from home. Yeah. And I want the norm to be that if you want to go and watch your, your kid do sport in the afternoon or a recital or something, that's the norm. You should do it. And if that means you work at 8 o'clock at night, well, that's fine. Just yeah. organize your day around that. The problem is, is when you're always going into an office, there's a guilt thing. People yeah. think they have to be there at 8 and they must stay there till 5 and you get a massive inefficiency and then you get these work pressures, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Whereas if you almost had a, had a policy where we didn't really have hours, you know, you just got to deliver. And uh, also there's no leave policy. If you want to take off, take off. Just get your work done. Don't let your customers down. Um, that would be the ideal situation because people generally, and we found it in COVID, people generally are honest and are going to finish their work and are proud about what they do. There is the small minority, but what's interesting when you're on VCs and you're not going to office, you very quickly find out who those people are who are just perennial meeting sitters because that's how they get paid, but they end up doing no work. Yeah. And uh, so it's been a very interesting process and uh, I'm, I'm quite excited about that going forward. I found that analogy actually with my children when it came to exams, they had to self-moderate themselves for these exams. And always the fear when we were growing up is everybody's going to cheat. Yeah. Um, they said they didn't, but, uh, <laughs> um, but it's weird because I think they want to put their best foot forward as well, like you're saying. I think generally people are good, and I think we need to, that's a perception that we need to, to drive out and then deal with the people that aren't pulling their weight as opposed to paint everybody with the same brush of mistrust. Are you seeing that as well? Are you, are you seeing that? that uh, absolutely. That, I mean, I think in the in this situation, you know, the, the the need for a manager to do it is less because the community very quickly weeds out the people who aren't carrying their weight. Because when you're on a VC like this, uh, all of a sudden they say, "Okay, you do this, you do that, you do that," and they divide the work up and they all go away. They come back, you know, five days later, and if you haven't done your bit. You've let the whole team down and you'll get told very quickly. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing that was interesting for me is that, um, you know, we've, I've always encouraged people not to travel because it's expensive. You're also away from home. You waste a lot of time. So if you have to be on Exco and VCN because you're in Cape Town, do it. The problem is, is that if there's only one or two people on the VC, it doesn't really work. Yeah. But if everyone's on VC... Yeah, it works perfectly. In fact, it's brilliant. People are more polite. They push the button to raise their hand. You have a, a good discussion, um, and so um, yeah. So you have to you have to flip it to say that's the norm. Yeah. For people to go and sit together in a room, that's not the norm. So yeah. you're going to be odd people out if that's what you want to do. And once you get that new norm going, everyone's very comfortable with it and they don't feel like they are being judged because they're not in the room or they haven't traveled or, you know, something. And so you just think about your personal life. 
you know, suddenly you don't have to be in Joburg. You can actually go and watch your kids thing or take them to school or pick them up or it takes so much pressure off the whole situation and you can be just as uh, efficient. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing a more... Because ultimately what we're saying is we're taking the focus from time-based work, which is not necessarily the best way, to a productive and an outcomes-based work. Yeah. Are you seeing an impact from that within the organization in terms of happier people? I mean, it seems that we're measuring success differently as well. Mm. So I think we're still going through the, the curve. I'm seeing massive productivity increases. I think we've achieved as a team in three months what we took six months last year to do, just because it's intense, it's organized, you know you've got certain time, you know when your deliverables are, and it sort of rolls through. The downside of it is some people are taking more stress, and uh, you know, I, I got someone, one of our lawyers, sent me something at one o'clock this morning, you know, and that almost irritates me because I know they need to get stuff done, but you shouldn't be doing it at one o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, but so I still think there's a bit of stress in the system for two reasons. One is because I think people are struggling, especially when they're ambitious and they're trying to get ahead. You know, in my position, I can't really get promoted. So all I've got to do is a good job, you know, but for people that are still trying to um, um, move up, move up and you know get uh, um they they tend to just do that extra piece of work and i think they're working a lot harder and they're not getting these natural breaks in, in between so we've been working quite hard on that i mean i've been trying to lead by example take leave tell everyone i'm taking leave so don't phone me i'm just going to sit at home for three days and uh i, I try to only start any meetings at nine o'clock in the morning so that it gives everyone just that, you know, bit of break, have breakfast with the family, do some exercise um, and try and lead with, uh, with that example. Because I, so I do think that's the one, one stress in the, the system. The mm. second stress in the system is that, uh, you know, we, we're going into, we are in quite a difficult recession. Yeah. So there's a big chunk of people who will be worried about their jobs. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, we did a survey and at least a third of my people were saying they worried about their jobs. And I mm -hmm. find that interesting because there's no way one out of three people are going to be out of a job. It's just yeah. not going to happen. So maybe it's at worst one out of 10. But yeah. yet, three times those people are worried about it. And it's because of, you know, you've got the, the need to look after your family and your kids and everything. So people do you worry about it so those two things are making it a bit more stressful but i think as we get through it and it normalizes uh people will en enjoy it i mean the survey we did as well 50 percent of my people said they never want, want to go back to an office 35 percent said they'll do hybrid and only 15 percent said they want to go back to the office so already people are seeing the benefit of this flexible you know working arrangement and so I think as everything settles down and we get a rhythm and yeah. um, people see the sustainability of everything uh, and we get through and we come out of uh, this lockdown, I think it will normalize. And I do think you're going to see a very different uh, work-life balance coming out. And I think it's incredibly important. 
For sure. I, I, I agree with you. And I think that um, I feel ambitious quite a lot, but I feel like we're, we're learning quite a bit around new technologies and ways of doing things. So I find myself pushing myself, but every time I do, there's always a kickback. So I can work till late, but then a couple, like a week or so later, then I'm not feeling so good and I'm not on top of my game. So it, it, I, those impacts you can see really quickly now, and maybe I'm a little bit irritated or whatever. And so it's like, that's not what you want in this moment. You can't afford to be, um, you know, you've got to be on top form in these moments. Yeah. But I mean, for me, I also work with a, a team of a lot of women and I've been far more appreciative of um, what they do. Are you seeing that as well? Are you seeing the, the because of the role of women in the organization, are they the ones mainly saying, we want to work from home? What, what, what's your sense there? Yeah, no, I think it's, a, I think it's across the, the, the board. You know, I've always, um, you know, driven for a diverse team. You know, if I want to know what a white male chartered accountant thinks like, I just go and look in the mirror and ask myself. You know, so I don't need lots of those in my team. I try and balance it out. Um, yeah. I've had my best successes where I've had people you know, challenging me the, the most. I remember at uh, ABSA, um, I'd been at Deutsche Bank for 10 years and then went to ABSA and was running CRB. But the one thing that I hadn't really managed to get right was transformation. I, I tried a few things and I'd failed and, you know, one tries to rush it or doesn't try and understand it. And so I took uh, the, um, the leap of faith and went and hired two people that were very different to me, uh, with one of them being Pakamani Khadebi. Um, I don't know if you know, he came out of National Treasury, he was the DDG there, then he went and turned around Land Bank, yeah. and then he came and joined me. And he was, he was just such a different person. He used to come in my office, he used to sit down, and uh, we'd have debates. And um, he just thought very differently to me, but he was passionate about it. And so he had a lot of energy around him. And uh, I learned so much on how to do it differently. And um, we started making big strides into really getting it right. And um, it was very interesting. You know, when I left there, I think we had uh, 35% woman uh, and something like 65% black on the yeah. expo of a you know big 12 country bank and uh, all of them there on on merit there was no nobody there who hadn't earned their stripes to get there but it was part of a process and i needed to understand that emotionally to be able to get it and so diversity is really important in your your management team and that also creates a balance and you you start seeing the different stresses on the woman in the business as of the men on the business and you start getting that balance. But I think just about everyone that I've spoken to says to me, they just love the fact that they don't have to do so much travel, being able to reconnect with their family. I think not having to get up at six in the morning to take kids to school as well has also made a fundamental difference. So I think schools are going to have to also fundamentally change because they're part of the problem in a way. Yeah, it's funny how we, we looped in. I realized it as well. So we're looped into waking up for the schools and then everything sort of dials in on that. Yeah. But, and I agree with you. It's like, how do we shift to a, to a good way of working where we feel good, we're energized, and then we do our best, best work. We're not under stress. We're, you know, we're, we're living that life. 
but I mean, diverse thinking, it's quite a, it's quite a revolutionary thing now in terms of looking for people who actually actively are different to you. I mean, a lot of organizations are prioritizing this as a sustainable tool. I mean, is that, is that a priority for you as well to, to look absolute at? absolute priority. I mean, I, I, I just look at it more from a business requirement thing. Imagine in South Africa, for example, and let's just use the extreme, that, uh, and, and, and this example is not from so long ago, is that I only go and hire chartered accountants for the banking business. And I remember when I started in my first banking job, we were 70% chartered accountants. And the, the problem with that is that when you then go and look for talent in different things, you've got such a small pool. And so if you don't diversify your business to make sure it's black, it's female, it's Indian, it's colored, it's white, it's chartered accountants, it's engineers, it's artists, uh, uh, um, you know, if, if you don't broaden that, then you look in a very small pool. And really in, in today's world, to get the best talent, you've got to be looking everywhere. And the thing is, I don't interact with all those communities. So unless I've got people that interact with all those communities, went to school together, play soccer together, or you know, go to dinner clubs together, you never get to see the full you know, spectrum. And <coughs> excuse me, I've been amazed at the quality of people that start coming out if you just change the way and decentralize that because you start getting these gems that pop out that you yourself would never have recognized, first of all, but secondly, just would never have had access to. And um, I think it's massively important to get the diversity of thinking, but then you need to create the structure where you're listening, getting feedback, making decisions, moving forward. Otherwise, it's, uh, you know, it just uh, is a waste of time. Obviously, when you're rebuilding an organization like you are and you're seeing that trajectory, obviously a big part of that plan is, is obviously corporate governance and making sure you're putting the rules and the policies and things like how you deal with corruption. I mean, how are you finding that in terms of this journey? Is, is that a challenge? Is, is it something that you're... How are you, how are you dealing with those sort of bigger issues? You know, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It goes back to the earlier point. You know, 99% of people are good people. And all they want is guidance of what they need to do and what they don't need to do. I've found that putting in proper governance structures and policies actually protect your employees. So, you know, when they go to a, a company and a company exec tells them to do X, Y, and Z, it's so much easier for them to say no because my company rules say this than them personally to, you know, say to them, no, I don't feel like doing that. And so if you create a protection mechanism for them, I've found that people are very, very quick to adopt it. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we've just uh, last year started, the first thing we did is we had our standard governance and compliance training that you had to go through. It's never been done in this company ever. And uh, I was really wary about whether everyone would just laugh it off and we'd really battle to get people through. But within, uh, I think, about eight months, we now have a 93% completion rate. And as you know, a big chunk of the 7% will be 
either blue collar workers or they can't get access or they work in the canteen or they're on you know maternity leave or something like that. I mean, in my other two organizations, I never got 93% and we used to have to do it every single year. And this is a new thing to a company. It's foreign to them. And yet we get a 93% um, um, acceptance rates where they've actually delivered it. Yes, we did it digitally and we made it fun and everything. And that was part of what Fatima and her team did. But um, um, so that part of it has actually been very well received. Um, I think people are very proud of the company. And so they wanted to you know, be able to um, uh, say we've done all the right things. And, you know, once again, they appreciate, if you do it in the right way, a positive way, they appreciate the support to help them do the right thing as well as, as they're learning. So that bit has actually been um, not that difficult. Uh, it's like our whistleblowing app. Our whistleblowing app has just been an amazing success. Um, the things that we've learned out of it and been able to change because people were complaining about bad practices or, you know, different things. And it just gives you a very easy way to um, collect data and uh, make good change. And when people see that you're listening to them, they're prepared to give you more information and assist and give you ideas. And so if you take them seriously, um, it's amazing how much effort they will put into helping you change the company. So those parts have actually probably been um, almost the easiest parts. And in terms of like the effect, the impact of COVID on the business, I mean, have you seen a big impact? Some companies are talking about a 10% or 15% decrease in sales. And I spoke to um, Andrew from Yuppie Chef and he said he's looking at about a 15 to 20% decrease in business. Um, are you, what are the sort of the impacts you're seeing there? And, and I know that obviously listening to your, your, your team is really important. How are you finding it listening to the customers on, on what they're experiencing, how they're finding this? So there's a few things there. The first thing is we're quite lucky in that we are a very broad-based company that does a lot of things. So we're not beholden to a single product like a restaurant or an airline or a hotel or something like that. So we've got a lot of different products. We right across the spectrum. We largely a services company. So people need our services. We obviously, um, most companies can't operate without their IT today. So, um, we are fairly important. We have seen in, in, in uh, some of the, the, um, product lines like hardware, and in some of the software that people are slowing down those purchases. But then on others, people have been accelerating, like on e-commerce, uh, you know, digitizing sales, um, just to take, uh, allowing people to work from home, access via VPNs. So there's been sort of a balance. If, yeah. if, you, if you have a chat to the research houses, they were expecting the RCT um, business to grow about two percent of of uh, the, the South African economy, or two percent um, of GDP, it's about a hundred forty billion, you know, business um, business. They were expecting it to grow around seven point two percent. They're now expecting it on average to be flat. Obviously, uh, you might find uh, hardware and software maybe down, but services up. But on on average, they're expecting it to be flat. So. We've seen some 
some softness on revenue, but uh, ours is very much an input and output. So as long as you control your input costs, you can control your output. Um, and so what we did is we very quickly had a look at all our customers. We had about, I think it was about 67 customers that we were worried would be affected from COVID. And that's 67 in a universe of you know nearly 5,000 uh, that were going to be uh, badly, difficultly um, affected by COVID. And we actually went and sat with them and said to them, okay, what service do you need as opposed to what you contracted for? And we've tried to balance that out and say to them, okay, we can give you less service because when you do that, then you know they'll pay you because they've told you they want that, you know. It's not that you're giving them something they don't want and then they're playing around. So we've managed to do that and try to help them manage their their um, business, but then I can manage my back-end input costs because I know what I'm having to deliver. Uh, that was the, the first thing. The second thing also was having a chat to, you know, people and uh, a lot of them would, you know, try and say, okay, we're going to, you know, push you to 90 days. And we said to them, but that's not my job. That's the, that's the job of your bank. The uh, government's given all these COVID um, um, concessions to the banks to give to companies. If you're pushing your problem onto me, it just means I must go and speak to my bank. And uh, if I speak to my bank and I don't get better terms than you, I'm going to push that price back up to you. So, you know, please go and do that with your bank. And we've had really good discussions and generally it's been okay. I think uh, just being part of BUSA, I mean, BUSA um, have, you know, all the, the members have made an absolute almost declaration, pay people on time, make sure you have the discussions, don't push your problems onto them, go and deal with your banks directly. And so I've seen that largely. In fact, business world seems to be working even better than it did pre-COVID. It does. It's quite interesting, you know. Uh, we're collecting our debt. We're collecting over a billion rand a month. Uh, it's been fairly stable. Um, it's been easy to go and have discussions. People have the discussions. It's been far less, more collegiate and less acrimonious, which has been very interesting for me. Uh, so, yeah. And, and are you, I mean, some of the organizations that we're seeing, so like it was interesting, um, Vodacom and Discovery tied up and sort of did this joint venture where organizations are like collaborating. Are you seeing that now as well, like collaborating with your customers and collaborating with maybe not competitors, but other organizations in different fields? Yeah, I've seen more of um, new requirements coming out and... Um, having the discussions, almost the solutioning discussions with customers uh, around how it would work. And they, they, there does seem to be um, a bigger discussion happening around risk sharing. Let's do this together and we'll give you some of the upside so you get access to their customer directly. We've had a few of those. Um, those discussions are starting to happen more than yeah. um, before. And I do, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's going to happen. This just might accelerate it a bit, which is quite exciting. Yeah, I think so. Like you're saying, is that the risk and reward being shared more than, and partnering up, that's what I'm seeing really, as opposed right. to being higher or client. It's, we're partners now and we're in this together. Um, oh, that's right. And so what do you see as the future of, where are you seeing some hot opportunities 
for the business? Where are you seeing a, a new focus? Is it things like AI? Is it, you know, are, are there any machine learning, AI, those sorts of things? Or is it, is it you know, more, what sort of services are you seeing? Is it more it's training? Nothing. Yeah, I, I, I don't think anything's changed in terms of where it was going. It's just accelerated. Yeah. So e-learning, e-commerce, uh, uh, moves, moves to the cloud, um, trying to digitize backends more uh, in, in um, you know, businesses. We're seeing a lot more of that and people wanting to drive it harder and faster. And I think that's, you know, quite important. Um, but I think for me where the, the, the real opportunity is going to be is in what we call this platform economy. And if you think about it, you know, um, I don't know, 50 years ago, or if you lived on a farm, you used to come home, you used to go and get some wood, you'd fire up the boiler so you could have a shower mm. and, um, you know, you, you would go on. Um, but now you walk into your house, you flick a switch, you just expect the electricity to come on and you don't really know what the technology is at the back end. <clears throat> Same with your Wi-Fi. Not so long ago, you used to go and fire up your modem. You were really worried about the technology because that's what gave you the speed. Whereas today, you get in your house, you don't know the, what the technology is. You just want to know you can connect automatically and go. And so you can see this is what's, what's happening with technology is people want more and more. And this is basically what cloud is. You know, you don't know what the technology and all that is is processing speed and data storage. Or yeah. uh, you don't know what the technology is. You don't care as long as it works. If you go on Facebook, you just want to be able to post some pictures and send them to your friends. You don't care what the technology is. And this is really what's happening with IT. And so the, the, the real trick going forward is can you standardize platforms where it's 80% standardized and only 20% bespoke? And these are what they're calling these low-code platforms where the whole, <clears throat> the core engine room is, is a technology you don't even care about, but it works. And then there's a middleware that sits on top that allows you almost like the Apple iStore you can go and put your app into the iStore that uses the underlying technology of an Apple phone uh, and it will create a new use case. And this is really what people are looking for. They're looking for solutions rather than, than products because in the old days, you'd have to get all the products together and build your own car. Whereas today, you just want to get the car and it you know, drives. You don't care which tires on it as long as it stays on the road. And so this is really where RT is going. And so... We need to take our RP and our, our clever stuff. We need to start putting it together in a way that um, it's industrial strength and people can just add on to it. Imagine if we had a standard e-commerce platform that did payments, uh, did uh, digital identity, and did um, data analytics as core functionality. Yeah. Every single developer, innovator, entrepreneur that's the basis of business who you're dealing with yeah. um, did they do a good job so you can like them or hate them like uh, uber um, can you do payments both ways and can you take your data and analyze it to have a next best offer yeah and then you can build whatever you want to whether it's insurance lending you know uh, uh, retail sales restaurants you know you can build a whole ecosystem around that 
and I mean, that's just one example, but there's so many of those that you could build out. And this is really where it's, it's going. And this is where we need to go. And that's why being a services company with so many Lego blocks of RP, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think we've got a real opportunity here to, um, you know, really take a big step forward. Because obviously now you can service one customer on multiple opportunities, really. So exactly it right. creates a massive revenue opportunity. And, you know, What's more important around it is that you end up um, over time, and we're seeing it, I saw it in the banking industry, is um, the B2B world, the margins are getting squashed. And already in the big businesses, they've already squashed that margin out. And so now the margin sits more in the medium and SMEs, and eventually that will come out. But the real margin going forward is going to be in the consumer because the consumer will always pay for good service. If you mm-hmm. save time, if you save friction for them, they're prepared to pay for it. And mm-hmm. so if you can start creating these risk-sharing platforms, I'm a B2B um, a company, but I can become a B2B2C company. And that's really, you start getting access to other people's customers and then you need the scale. And this is how, you know, Google works or any of those other companies, Amazon, is exactly the same. They were just ahead of the game. What I saw is is this shift in our expectations as well, because we're, we might be in South Africa, but people are engaging with things like Netflix and it's that how they engage and what they expect from Netflix is that expectation is linked to any other engagement that they're doing through the internet. That's the standard. So it's almost like, well, then we need to build solutions and customize solutions to make sure that they're ease of use. As you mentioned, that payment's easy. It's all integrated to to, to this future. And, And I mean, what do you feel that as an organization you've learned from COVID? Because I think there's, it's like they, they say never waste a good um, crisis. <laughs> no, correct. I mean, a f- few things I've learned is that, um, you know, if you take people along with you with good ideas, you can execute them a lot quicker. And uh, this being in COVID has forced communication because you're no longer in this unreal world of just being next to each other that it feels like, you know, here you're forcing yourself to communicate. And um, it's allowed us to take some pretty chunky decisions uh, quite easily because people realize that in a, in a crisis, if you don't change, if you're not agile, if you're not being efficient, um, you're probably going to struggle. And so they're far more accepting of very hard decisions like you know, we were, I think, one of the first companies in South Africa just to take salary cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we did that in, in March, literally in the first week of uh, shutdown. Uh, we did that, and uh, it, you know, obviously it wasn't easy, and I'm not saying uh, people were happy about it, but they accepted it because they saw it as a necessary. Imagine doing that pre-COVID, how difficult that would have been. Um, and uh, that made us very re- resilient going through a very unknown period. We've now sort of settled. We'll see what the recession looks like. But uh, the data um, I'm getting, you can see the RFP starting to pick up every month. There's more of them coming out. Whereas in April, they nearly went dead because everyone went back into their ex and was you know, reimagining 
their, their strategy, but that's starting to pick up again. So you get a bit more confidence around the business. You're starting to see uh, more wins, so more contracts being signed. So you can start now getting a feel for what it might look like. And yes, it's not going to be like it was pre-COVID, but mm-hmm. you can start now managing the, the um, efficiency around your business to make sure you can um, deal the new normal. And, um, and, you know, people have been so much more frugal. I mean, I found even in my own life, I've been so much more frugal, not wasting money because, you know, you just don't know when it's going to come. And people in the business, I mean, the amount of money we've saved in the business, I set our, our people 100 million rand a month for four months target, and that was 10% of revenue because I just didn't know what was going to happen to our revenue. Well, they saved more than that. Um, and, uh, you know, without asking, which is, you know, without having to push and, and you know what it's like when you do cost cutting, everyone's got a thousand excuses why they shouldn't do it. But just asking, you know, putting some things out, people came back with some great ideas. Uh, some of the cost will come back because, you know, we will yeah. get back to travel and entertainment and that, but I think it's going to be much less. And, um, um, it's just been, it's been a fantastic experience actually. Wow. And I mean, you mentioned something earlier, you said about speed and I get this sense talking about exponential organizations and certainly what Tony said to me, he said to me that he wrote a book 70, he wrote the book about why digital transformation fails. And he basically put it down that 70% of digital transformation fails because one, a leader doesn't get involved. And the other reason is because they're too slow. So they don't have that runway that aircraft can't take off because of that speed. Are you seeing that as well? Are you seeing that things are getting done quicker? And, and he also talked about frugal innovation as well, by the way, um, which is what you just spoke yeah. about. There's been a f- few things here. One is, is the, the speed of which people get things done uh, in, in, in a crisis is just, is just totally different. Uh, it's interesting how, how people are happy to do the MVP now at a real MVP, you know, not this, uh, oh, I need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They really come back and the, the solution. I mean, we've, we've started having like 15 minute meetings. I've never had 15 minute meetings in my life. We have 15 minute meetings now and it's, there's three things we have to discuss. You've got 15 minutes and it's off, you know, yeah. and it's amazing. People just go through, get it done and, and move on. So that's been fascinating. The other thing that's been really interesting is when you encourage people to innovate uh, what they come up with. I mean, when we first went in, I got the team together and we just talked about what our business is going to need, what are our customers going to need, go and speak to them, think about it, ideate it. And we ended up coming up with over 70 new products for COVID. And, uh, you know, some of them were old things, but we just repurposed them. Um, and, um, that's also created a lot of excitement because people feel like they were allowed to go and do that. And, um, and um, that's also given us new revenue streams. So, you know, some have fallen off, you know, we've got other ones back. Um, we've also got a policy of anything that we develop that's a generic company thing, we use it internally. So we will implement it, use it and see how it works. And then we'll, we'll start selling it. So we become our own guinea pigs and don't sell anything that, um, you know, doesn't work for us. So that's been fascinating as well. 
interesting. Eh? So having a different approach and reading their books and then actually having a chance with COVID to implement all those things that you, you, you see some of these great Googles and Apples doing and, and it's happening. It was, it's been really amazing to speak to you. And as I said earlier, talking to Ian Williamson, you know, he's got a, a huge amount of respect for you and I can, and I can really see why. Um, I think you've done a cracking job already and, and really best of luck for the future. Um, and, and thanks for sharing your insights with us today. No, brilliant. Thanks very much. Um, sorry I couldn't make your event yesterday. And congratulations on its success and look forward to uh, being involved in the next one. Mm-hmm.